to take your Bible and turn with me to Mark, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. As we pick up uh, the story of the arrest and the trials of Jesus and his appearance before the Jews and the trial before Pilate, we're going to pick it up <coughs> at verse 15 of chapter 15. <coughs> So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him with a purple cloak, and twisting together a cloud of, of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> in all the Gospels, the final step in Jesus' trial is taken so swiftly, it's almost an afterthought. You see that at the end of verse 15. He delivered him to be crucified. In John's gospel, then he handed him over to be crucified. Raymond Brown in his commentary helpfully explains this. He says the brevity in describing Pilate's decision has a psychological impact of portraying a man making a decision under pressure. We've seen this as it's developed in the story. The pressure that has been upon this man, who has been convinced from the very beginning that there is, no, there is no legitimate charge against Jesus, that Jesus has done no crime, he's repeated that language, that Jesus is innocent of any crime. And the pressure has built and built, and in the end, Pilate has been forced by the pressures of the crowd to make this decision. And so we find Jesus Barabbas is set free, and the other Jesus is handed over to be crucified. And rather than being able to preserve the peace as Pilate had hoped, this action would lead to. In fact, afterwards, it becomes clear that ultimately peace cannot be established at the expense of truth or at the expense of justice. We know from outside of the New Testament that the command probably went something like this, go soldier, get ready the cross. In words such as those, Pilate must have given that final order. And John gives us the historical order of events, the 
scourging, which in Mark takes place after he's delivered to be crucified. In John comes before that. It was scourging and then crucifixion, or being handed over to be crucified. And we know that that would be the order in the ancient days. However, the Gospels want the theology of it to come to our attention. Uh, The scourging was preliminary to the crucifixion, and that's what's underscored here. Now, what is remarkable about the period which is inclusive of Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion is the wealth of Old Testament citations uh, or allusions that we find in the account. As somebody has put it, the facts are permeated with the Word. That is the Word of God. The facts are permeated with the Word. And that's consistent with the fact that Jesus had taught his disciples to see himself in all of Scripture, the things concerning himself. In in Mark's gospel, this is very obvious right at the very beginning in chapter 1. At his baptism, God the Father quotes from the words of the servant songs of Isaiah. Here's how Isaiah reads. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. At the baptism, God, the Father, uses both that servant song and Psalm 2 when he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In other words, the Father, right at the very beginning, is first to fix our attention on the book of Isaiah and on the suffering servant as a sign of his saving mission to the world. He is the first to proclaim that the words of the prophet are to be fulfilled in the Son's saving acts. And this principle is one that applies to all of the New Testament. If you want an order in which to read the Bible, read the Old Testament first. Thoroughly acquaint yourself with the Old Testament and then read the New Testament. It makes the New Testament come alive. Why? Because the New Testament emerges out of what was revealed in the Old Testament. And so if you're going to read the Gospels... Uh, You should read the book of Isaiah. We did a series of studies that lasted a long, 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 long time uh, on Isaiah. But the work we did on Isaiah then helps us now as we read this gospel. For those songs, the servant songs, are the key to unlocking the mystery of Christ's sufferings and death. Let me remind you of some of those Songs, the first of the servant songs. God says these words I am the Lord, I have called you. He's addressing the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I've taken you by the hand. I've kept you. I've given you as a covenant to the people. We'll see that reenacted as we come to the table in a moment. A light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind 
to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to a graven image. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you. Now, in all of that language there, I want you just to notice this, that the Father is speaking to the Son. The Son is to become a covenant to the people. And at the table, we will remember that he shed his blood as a sign of the new covenant that is established between God and us. And he is the light of the nations. In other words, he is salvation and light for all the nations of the world without respect of person. And he is the Lord. Why do I say that? Because God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Whereas Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, is transfigured with the glory of God. Jesus, in his prayer before his crucifixion, says, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. When we talk about Jesus and his glory, we're not talking about something in addition to God. We are talking about God, the Son. That was the first servant song. The second servant song, we hear the servant's voice himself. Here's what he says in Isaiah 49, verse 1. From the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. He named me. From the womb, that is from his eternal birth as the Son of God. From the body of his mother, that is from his earthly birth of Mary. This is the son that is given in Isaiah chapter 9, given by the father, the son who is eternally the son of God, and he is the same child who is born, born of the Virgin Mary, to be our Savior. To him the Lord declares, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And in Jesus, all the hopes and expectations of Israel find their fulfillment in himself. He embodies the whole of what it truly means to be Israel, the true Israel of God, the faithful and true witness, the light to the nations. Israel was meant to be the faithful and true witness. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. Israel was meant to proclaim the covenant of God to the Gentiles, but they refused to do so. Jesus comes as the new and true Israel, the light to the nations, the one who comes to glorify God. And in Jesus, God will be truly glorified. In Jesus, God's people will become a holy nation because of the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus... The covenant of God will be, uh, the, the borders of Israel and the covenant people will be extended out to encompass the whole earth and all the tribes and the nations and the peoples of the earth. And even though we find him deeply despised and wickedly rejected and horribly treated, 
Isaiah goes on to say, kings shall see, and kings shall arise. Princes will arise, and they will prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The worldly power has declared him guilty, but the servant declares, I have not been confounded, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me, Father, is near. Behold, the Lord helps me. Who shall declare me guilty? Thomas Onandi writes, Jesus will be killed, but he will not be condemned because he was never found guilty. That's Pilate's whole point. Again and again and again, there is no crime in this man. This man is innocent. Pilate refuses to condemn Jesus. And Jesus, in the end, is simply crucified for being who he is and what his name Jesus represents. Yahweh saves. He is crucified for being himself. Like you being punished for being Jimmy or Janie or Jezebel or whatever your name is. Being punished simply for being who you are. Jesus is crucified for being who he is. And then in the last of the servant songs, we find his sufferings spelt out in detail. And those sufferings are prefaced by a kind of controlling narrative. The controlling narrative is this. My servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. That's language used only of God in Isaiah and of the servant in Isaiah. Of God in Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord exalted, lifted up, and very high. The servant is to be exalted and lifted up and very high. And we have to keep that in the back of our minds when we read the story here. All this while people are astonished at him. As they see him scourged, beaten, bloodied, crowned with thorns. To the point where his wounds rob him of any human resemblance. I remember when we were school, at school, we, we were caught up in uh, the... Uh, the excitement of the world welterweight championship boxing competition that was going to be held in Glasgow. And we had a local hero who was going to be taking part in the boxing uh, ring, and we had staked all of our expectations as boys on him winning. He didn't win. He lost. Not only did he lose, he lost to someone who had pummeled his face until his face was unrecognizable for who he was. The shock of seeing that man after he had been in the boxing ring shook everyone. And as we think of Jesus, that's the picture we have to have in mind. Isaiah 52, his wounds rob him of any human resemblance. And although he will grow up before the Lord like a young plant, 
People will say about him that he had no form or comeliness that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as it were, one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. When you read these servant songs, you soon see that the idea of a suffering Messiah is not a Christian interpolation into the text. I remember when I was teaching at King's College in London that a Muslim student asked a Jewish student why the Jews had rejected Jesus. Her answer was, he was the Messiah we didn't want. Why? Because he was crucified, dead and buried, which is why the Muslim student, of course, couldn't accept that Jesus had actually died. Couldn't allow that because having believed him to be a prophet, he could not countenance the fact that Jesus had died on the cross. The fact of his sufferings and death push his followers, you and I, to be more attentive to the text of Scripture. So the songs in Isaiah point to the divine motive and the meaning of his sufferings. Here's what we read. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We looked at this man and we saw him disfigured by his sufferings. We saw him pierced and on the cross, the place of the curse. We looked at this man and we thought, he must have done something seriously wrong. God must have smitten him. God must have put him there as punishment. But surely he has borne our grief. He has carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He's there in our place. He's there in our stead. Now, why did I start with the servant songs of Isaiah? Because the book of Mark begins with them in the very first chapter. And throughout Mark, Jesus has identified himself with the servant and his mission. For example, he says this, the Son of Man, that's himself, came. That is, he came into the world from the outside. He came not to be served. He didn't come because he needed anything. He didn't need our approval or our, our applause. He did not come to be served. He came in humility. And Paul might add these words, as though he needed anything. He doesn't need your praise. He doesn't need anything from us. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he acts this out for us in John chapter 13. You remember when he takes off his outer garment, he puts on the badge of the slave, pours water into the basin, and washes his disciples' feet. He is reenacting there this great business of having come, having come from his place, having come, as it were, from heaven. He's come to where we are. He has stooped to where we are. He will pour out, not water into a basin, he will pour out his blood 
He will pour out his life unto death. That language is used in the New Testament. And he will do that so that he might wash us, not just wash our feet, but wash us spiritually, wash away our stain of sin and reconcile us to God. He says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the language. That is the control through which we read the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Now back to the event. John tells us that Jesus carried his own cross. When reading John's account, we remember that John's account is a theological account of the events. And as we're listening to it, we have to pay attention to those active, the active tense of the verbs that, that are used. And so we read in John's gospel that they, the Jews and the soldiers, took Jesus. They took him, meaning they grabbed him. They, they physically took a hold of him. But then we read, Jesus went out. Jesus went out bearing his cross. To the onlooker, it might seem that the authorities have the upper hand. To the onlooker, they are in charge of events as they unfold. They are the active agents because they took Jesus. But John points out what is glaringly obvious in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus is the one who went out bearing his own cross. He had repeatedly told them over and over and over again, the disciples, that he was going to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed, he was going to be crucified, he was going to rise from the dead, and he was going to do that for us. He went out bearing his own cross. And John is emphasizing the theological importance of this. He is the acting agent making his way to the place where he will finish his father's work. Now, how do we know that? We know that because earlier in John's gospel in chapter 10, Jesus says this, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This charge... I have received from my Father. In other words, they are only providing the opportunity for him to fulfill his mission. When you read those words, for this reason my Father loves me, I want you never to look at the cross without reminding yourself what Jesus says about himself on the cross. When you see me on the cross, know this. My Father loves me. At no point, at no point, did the Father not love the Son or stop loving the Son. 
In fact, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, when Jesus is on the cross, we might, using human language, say, the Father never loved his Son so much as when he was on the cross, bearing your sins in his own body on the tree. It was the Father who sent the Son into the world to do that very thing. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that He might be our Savior. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Now, as we read about this, Jesus went out bearing His cross. Clement of Alexandria wrote of the story of Abraham and Isaac, and many other teachers of the church have seen the analogy to the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember that Abraham was told to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, and you are forgiven for seeing in all of that language that's used there to describe Isaac a reflection of God's repeated sayings to Jesus. You are my beloved son at his baptism. You are my beloved son at his transfiguration. You are my beloved son again before his arrest. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice. And we read that Abraham took his son and Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice. Now, here's the amazing thing. Isaac was never sacrificed because that was never God's plan. Instead, God provided a lamb who died in the place of Isaac. Just as a lamb died in the place of you, the Lamb of God. And we read in Romans chapter 8 that the Father spared not His only begotten Son, but gave Him up freely for us all. The Father who spared Isaac did not spare Jesus. Jesus carried the wood for His own sacrifice on the cross, Chrysostom, the great early church preacher, puts it like this. What Isaac was spared, Jesus endured. He went out. He went out of the city to Calvary, to Golgotha, outside the city gates. Now, in Jerusalem today, there's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that is very ancient. It goes way back in time. It's very early on in the Christian story that it was the site was identified, and uh, over time, the church built and then enlarged uh, over the, the first few centuries. And uh, on that site, the place of crucifixion and the tomb are encompassed by the church that stands there today. People in Jesus' day marked important sites. They remembered them. Uh, if you've ever been to Italy, you'll know that the Italians, do, the ancient, the Romans did, uh, not Italians, the Romans that precede the Italians, uh, had this habit of marking out places 
that were important to them. And so if you go, it's near the uh, St. John's Latter in the church called San Clemente, you'll see there uh, a church, and if you go into it, you can go down two levels to the sub-basement, as it were, which is a Roman street. The tiles are still there. You can walk in the tiles of the first century street. You can see the, the little uh, a fountain that's still there. It was there in the first century. It's still there. You can see the remains of a Mithric temple here, and you can see the what's left of the villa that was Clement's villa in which the early church worshipped. And then you can go upstairs again to the church that was built in the 3rd century and then up to the top for the brand new modern building that was built in 1125. But the point is, they knew where Clement lived and it was marked, X marks the spot. And similarly, they knew where Jesus was crucified. Now, here's the thing. Visitors to Jerusalem today uh, have been fed the fact, have been pointed out the fact that today the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is is within the walls of the current city of Jerusalem. Okay? Inside the walls of the current uh, city of Jerusalem. So that seems to contradict the Bible, or did, until the great archaeologist, Mrs. Kathleen Kenyon, was given the opportunity to have the responsibility of excavating the old city, which she did. And her findings demonstrated beyond any doubt that in Jesus' day, the wall of the city was considerably south of the present city wall Therefore, the holy site was, as it says in the Bible, outside the walls, outside the camp. Jesus went out of the city to suffer outside the camp, as we read in Hebrews 13. Now, at this point, the Gospels tell us that the soldiers compelled a man called Simon to carry the cross behind Jesus Mark tells us that Simon was coming from the country. He'd been out doing his day-to-day business. He just returned to Jerusalem at the wrong time in the wrong place, and he was co-opted to help to carry the cross. He's probably a Jew of the diaspora. He came from Cyrene in North Africa, and the cross was put on him, John says, to carry after Jesus. Luke uses those words as well. And in Luke, of course, those words are unmistakably identified as an act of discipleship. Fourteen times in Luke, the language of carry after Jesus is used of the act of a disciple. Simon's action, even though it was forced on him, illustrates Jesus' teaching If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross Jesus carried, only he could carry ultimately. It included the sins of the world so that as the Lamb of God, he might bear away the sins of the world. There's a world of difference between what Jesus carried and what Simon carried 
Humanity in its billions could not take away sin. Only the Lord of glory could be crucified for us. But nonetheless, we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Our losses and our crosses will be difficult to bear. But by the grace of God, they are bearable because of His help and because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and because we know that He took the full weight of the world's sin for us. Luke tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, two men known to the Christian communities who would read Mark's gospel. In Luke's gospel then, among other links, the carrying of the cross after Jesus is linked to Peter's profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was then, back uh, earlier on in Luke's gospel, that Jesus pointed out to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the elders, and suffer and be killed. It's at that point that Jesus tells them to take up the cross and follow him. Now, notice in the story that Simon is compelled to do this. We don't choose our crosses. We don't volunteer for our crosses. The things that come into our life that are hard to bear, hard to carry, that are unique to us, are not things that we have any power or control over. Some of the early church fathers looked at this and they thought, this looks very much like the the Christian who is reluctant. But we're not told anything of Simon's reluctance. He was compelled to take the cross. I'm sure he'd rather not have taken the cross. It may have interrupted his business appointments for that day. It may have been the very thing that led him to believe in Jesus. We don't know. However reluctant we may be at first to bear our own cross for Jesus, we must remind ourselves that we find our very life here, right now, and the promise that we will share in Jesus' resurrection, life and glory, hereafter. Now, Luke is the only one who tells us that among the crowds that were looking on, there were many women who bewailed and lamented him. Though the crowd gathered to gawk at the broken figure taking the way of the cross, only these women were overcome with agonizing grief in the descriptions we have. Now, this is, this is something Luke would do throughout Luke's gospel. He has highlighted the response of women to Jesus. In the society of that time, that would be unusual. Of course, women were included among the outcasts of society. Only in Jesus are women given their dignity and their voice. These women were beating their breast, a sign of profound sorrow. A few days earlier, these women had been mentioned uh, when Jesus came triumphantly into the city riding on the donkey. It had been them, among others, who had greeted him with their hallelujahs as he entered the city. They who would have thrown down 
their their, uh, branches for him to ride over. I remember we went to Venice, and at Venice there is this massive painting called The Crucifixion by Tintoretto. And he uses his imagination. He has Jesus. He has actually all of the events surrounding his death in the pit, one picture. Jesus is in the center, near the foreground of the picture, on the cross. And he uses his imagination. And in the background, you see a donkey, which reminds you of the triumphal entry. And the donkey is eating the withered palm branches, which had been showered on Jesus in his entry into Jerusalem only a few days before. It's a reminder of how far they've come to be at this point, Christ crucified. Now we're told of these women that Jesus turned towards them, just as he had turned towards Simon Peter. And Jesus spoke to them, daughters of Jerusalem, he said, do not weep for me, but for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never gave suck. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they did this when the wood was green, what will happen when it's dry? You remember Jesus had wept over Jerusalem? Jesus had spoken of its fate. Within a generation it was to be demolished, destroyed, never fully to be rebuilt. These women, whom the apostle speaks, Jesus speaks of as daughters of Jerusalem, were introduced by Luke in his gospel, right at the very beginning of his gospel. He talks about Anna, the prophetess, who lived as a widow within the temple, who spoke about Jesus to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. She was a his first evangelist. These women believed in Jesus. However much they understood, they believed in Jesus. They're overwhelmed by the idea of his death. And Jesus tells them that they need not weep for him. He's absolutely sure of his father's will, his father's love, and his father's presence. But he is concerned to warn them And he uses the words of Hosea's prophecy that because of their unfaithfulness, God will bring down devastating judgment on Israel. And the same language that's used of that devastating judgment on Israel is used of the end of the ages. In Revelation chapter 6, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong and everyone slave and free hid in the rocks and among the rocks of the mountain, calling to the mountain and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand before it? These believing women then, who receive Jesus' words, receive them as a prophecy They receive them the way he intends them to acknowledge their faith on the one hand and the title he gives them. 
that is, daughters of Jerusalem, and to prepare them for the worst. And he is also teaching us that the violence done to him as the Prince of Peace is an omen of the violence that will be done to his church throughout its long history, and especially at the end of history. And is reminding us of the mayhem and disorder that will come at the end of days. The destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, points to that last day, to the conflagration and consummation of the age. Look how Jesus puts it. Today the wood is green. That is, the temple stands. Right at that moment, the temple stands, the the priests are offering sacrifices, the scribes are expounding Scripture, and for these last few years, the light of the world has been present in person. And they had conspired to quench the light, to silence the Word, to kill their Creator. If that happened then, when the blind were receiving their sight and the deaf were receiving back their hearing, and the dumb were being made to speak and the dead were being raised from the dead, if that happened in those days, what will happen in these last days? Days of self-love, self-indulgence, Sadly, self-loathing in some cases. Days of unbelief where every effort is made to distort, devalue, or deny the truth. Days in which it's possible to write articles in the press about the insidious hatred of humanity itself. Humans are the problem. Humans are the enemy. Humans have to be got rid of, whether it's with artificial intelligence or in whatever way, by means of war. To save the planet, we need to get rid of people. I read that this week. But these days will not last forever. In these days, one by one, people believe and worship him. God holds back that coming storm. But we need to know that though he waits, though he is silent now, the days are coming when he will speak and his voice will reverberate through the universe and his wrath will consume all that is caught up in the rebellion. And Jesus will receive to himself his own, those for whom he died, those whom he has loved with an everlasting love. And I ask you this morning, are you in that number? Are you in that number? You don't have to pay to get into that number. There's not a list of, a to-do list to get into that number. You know that number simply by believing in Jesus, by saying, Lord, save me. 
by confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That's all. And then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the indescribable gift that our Savior has given us in our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for uh, setting before us on this table the signs of his death, of his body and blood, the blood separated from his body in violent death, which are also the signs of our salvation. For by means of his death, by means of his sacrifice, we receive life in him, full, free, and abundant. Come gather with us as we sit to eat and drink with you at this table. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.